So yeah, Luke, Luke chapter 5, continuing on from <clears throat> where we were last week. There, there's another sort of little thought that, that the Lord has been stirring in me this last few days. I didn't really get time to, to ponder on it, but maybe for next week I will. Um, it's just something that I think is important for us as we go into the, the next four or five months as a church. So that's something to be, to be praying about for, for next week. But for now, Luke chapter 5. Um, last week we had Jesus meeting Peter the miraculous catch of fish and what you've got in Luke so far is just a gradual increasing and a gradual expanding. The crowds are growing. The interest is surging in, in Jesus and in his ministry. Um, but the question is, is he being understood the way he wants to be understood? As these crowds are coming to Jesus, are they understanding who he is? Are they getting a slightly cluttered and clouded picture of him. Um, This passage that we're going to deal with today, we're going to look at verses 12 to 26. There are two healings in here, um, but there are a bunch of shocks in here as well. Uh, Jesus does three or four quite shocking things, and we're probably familiar with them, but I want you to to hear them again in the context that they happened and, and realize just how, how shocking it actually was for him to do some of these things. So I've given it the title, Shock and Awe, which I think was a phrase coined back at the Gulf War in the early 90s when the, the Americans went to Iraq and dropped lots of bombs from lots of planes. And they used this phrase, Shock and Awe, for, for a short period of really sustained Uh, attack on that nation at the time. Uh, So there's plenty of shock and awe in this passage. Let me read, uh, just as a starting point, let me read verses 12 to 16 of Luke chapter 5. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So Jesus encounters a leper. I was going to show some pictures of leprosy this morning, and then I decided not to, because they are horrific. Really, really horrific. This is a disease where literally your fingers, your toes, your hands, your feet don't quite drop off, but over time they will become diseased and infected to the point that they will gradually not be there anymore. So it's not as if they're walking along one day and suddenly, you know, a, a, some, you know, a finger drops off. But over time, that finger will wear away until it is completely gone. It's a horrendous disease. 
And one of the guys who, who did a lot of medical work into leprosy was a fellow called Paul Brand. Uh, Paul Brand was born to missionary parents in India in 1914. And he spent about 50 years as one of the top hand surgeons in the world. And some of his time was spent in India working with lepers. And one night he lost sensation in his heel, in his foot. And that apparently is one of the first signs of leprosy. And he, he writes or somebody else writes about him in a, in a book about him about that night and the things that were going through his head as he thought that he had leprosy. And it says, feeling unwell and feverish, he realized that he could feel no sensation of touch whatsoever in the area around his heel, one of the disease's first symptoms. He had always checked himself carefully as leprosy workers were instructed to do. What followed for him was a night full of despair, plagued by questions and anxieties. What would this do to my life and my work? I had gone to India in the belief that I would serve God by helping to relieve suffering should I now go underground so as not to create a stir. I would need to separate myself from my family, of course, since children were unusually susceptible to infection. My office files were filled with diagrams charting the body's gradual march toward numbness. Ordinary pleasures in life would slip away. Petting a dog, running hands across fine silk, holding a child. Soon all sensations would feel alike. Dead. That's what he wrote about his fear that night that he had leprosy. Terrified about how it would affect his life. He was a guy who came up with a concept of the gift of pain. And he said, leprosy is not just about your body decaying. It's about the fact that you can no longer feel anything and you continually injure yourself without realizing it. A lot like sin. Leprosy in the Bible is, is almost like a visible picture to the human body of, of what sin does to the image of God in us. Gradually damaging yourself over and over again without even realizing it. And this guy comes along and Luke says he was covered with leprosy. He didn't just have it. He wasn't in the early stages. He was covered with it. Um, Luke, remember, is a doctor. Luke is the doctor who accompanied Paul on some of his journeys. And Luke notes these little medical details. This guy was covered in it. Josephus, who was a first century historian, said that a leper is no different from a corpse. If you got leprosy, you were dead. For a while you were the living dead. For a while you were a, a zombie, but you were dead. You had no hope. You had to go around shouting, unclean, unclean, and you had to ring a little bell. Uh, I hope Stefan doesn't mind, but he regaled me earlier with the story of how when he's out for a run in Gosford these days, if he wants some people on the path in front of him to move out of the way, all he has to do is cough, and suddenly <laughs> everybody scatters off the path. Well, th this, this was considerably worse. Um, you went around and you rang a little bell and you shouted unclean and everybody just vanished, scattered. Like going into the garage at night and flicking the light on and the mice all just disappear off into the corners. Not our garage, of course, honey. Somebody else's garage wouldn't. But uh, th this, this was the sort of life these people leaded. You were ostracized from society. 
You were banished from community. Now just get that. You were banished from community. You were not allowed to belong anymore. You were not allowed to belong. Banished, declared unclean physically, declared unclean religiously. You were just cut off from all contact. And I think if you were to ask a leper, what is the most painful thing about your disease? They would not say it's my hands or my feet or, or my, my self-esteem. Or, or it's the most painful thing is they can't touch anyone. They can't be with anyone else. They lived in a little society themselves, the lepers outside the city. Death had effectively invaded their bodies while they were still alive. But Jesus is in town. Jesus has, has come to town. And, and this guy asks him and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says a beautiful thing to him. Jesus says, I am willing. I am willing. And you will find no matter what state of desperation you come to Jesus in, you will always find that he is willing. He does not reject people. You read in in the Gospels of, of summaries and it says that everyone who came to him, he touched them, he healed them, he transformed them. He did not drive anyone away. Whoever the Father draws to me will be in no way cast out. Right? The, the awful thing that happened in Eden was that Adam and Eve were cast out and Jesus comes and says, anyone that comes to me will not be cast out. He is willing to receive anyone. And he does the, the first sort of shocking thing in this little passage of shock and awe is that Jesus reaches out his hand and touches this guy. And we think, mm, whatever, that's okay. No, that is not okay. That was a massive cultural shift to touch a leper. Nobody did that. If Jesus had said to Peter, touch him, Peter would have, no, no. But Jesus reaches out and touches him. This thing was highly infectious. We're very aware of things that are highly infectious these days. But this was highly infectious. And I can imagine the guy, you know, coming to Jesus and standing at an acceptable distance, (laughs) from Jesus. And, and as Jesus goes towards him to reach out, I can imagine the guy saying, no, 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 you can't touch me. I might infect you. I'll infect you, Jesus. I might tarnish your reputation. I might alter the course of your life if you come and touch me. But I can imagine Jesus then saying to him, no, 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 no. You can touch me. I will infect you. <laughs> I'll infect you. I will alter the course of your life. It'll not be the other way around. It's like when the river meets the sea. It's like whenever you read in in Ezekiel 47 of that river of life flowing from the temple. And as the river of life flows into the dead sea, where everything's dead, the river of life comes into the sea. And you think, surely the sea will be the overwhelming influence here. Surely the Dead Sea will overwhelm the fresh water of the river. But you find, no, where the river goes into the sea, everything lives. The river infects the sea. And when Jesus comes to this leper who has this incredibly infectious disease and Jesus touches him, it's not a case of the death infecting Jesus. It's a case of Jesus' life infecting the leper. It's a beautiful thing. 
He reaches out and touches him and life is transferred. There's an awful, horrible sort of satanic perception out there in culture that some people, because of their background, are not able to touch Jesus. That because of something they have done or something that has happened to them or some stigma or whatever, that that Jesus is good and Christians are dead on, but I can't actually touch him. I'm banished. I've done something or I have something that, that, that prevents me from being able to touch him. And that is a lie. Everyone who reaches out, everyone who comes to him, even though they think they can't touch him, his response is always, I am willing. I'm willing. And he touches the leper. He then does something else that's shocking. Or I think it's shocking. And something I've you know, just for years wondered why. Jesus says to them, don't tell anyone. That seems really daft, doesn't it? Like, Let's say somebody was to come in here and they had a, a horrible disease and they were prayed for and they were healed and away they, well, they went sort of jumping and, and jumping and lapping, as they would say, uh, closer to the border, lapping, jumping around, leaping, all excited, all happy. And we would go, don't tell anyone what happened, okay? <laughs> Keep it a secret. You can't, you can't tell anybody. Jesus does. It's very, have you ever wondered about that and thought, that's a bit weird? You've just totally transformed this guy's life. He's full of joy, and you tell him not to tell anybody as he leaves. And there are various sort of suggestions as to why Jesus did this. Um, there's no clear answer really in Scripture. But here's a, here's a couple of suggestions. Just a wee bit earlier in Luke's Gospel, just in the previous chapter, Satan has come to Jesus in the wilderness and he has tempted him three times. And one of the temptations was, you stand up on the highest point of the temple And if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. The angels will catch you, Jesus. You'll draw a crowd. It'll be amazing. The temptation was do something awesome to draw a crowd. And Jesus rejected that completely. He says, don't put, don't put God to the test. Satan even quoted scripture. He quoted it wrongly. But he quoted in Psalm 91 to Jesus in, in saying that he quoted it wrongly. He didn't realize that the same Psalm is just basically jumping up and down all over his head. And he quoted it to Jesus. But Jesus responded to say not to put God to the test. The, the, the temptation was do something amazing, Jesus, and draw a crowd. And I think as Jesus tells this guy when he's going away, don't tell anybody, I think he's making sure that that temptation can't rise again. That temptation that he will, he will draw a crowd by doing something that people perceive to be amazing. I can imagine Jesus saying to the guy, that's not why I came. Now hold that phrase. That's not why I came. Imagine you came into a vast quantity of money. Just for a moment, fantasize about that, okay? Some, some distant relative that you didn't even know or ever meet leaves you just bucket loads of cash. And then imagine that random cousins that you haven't seen for 20 years and old school friends start contacting you saying if you want to go for a coffee, And they even offer to pay for your coffee. And you start to become suspicious. These folks are connecting with me for the wrong reason. They don't care who I am. 
They don't really want to know me. They just know that I've got bucket loads of cash and they're hoping that they might get a bit. And I think Jesus as well, when he tells people after a healing or after a demonic deliverance, when he says to people, don't tell anyone what he's doing is he's saying, I don't want people to get the wrong idea about why I have come. Yes, I heal people. And yes, I set people free. And as Jesus goes on his journey, three years of ministry and to the cross, as people come to him, he has compassion on them. He heals them. He delivers them. But that is not the primary reason. And he does not want people to think that the primary reason he came was to heal the lepers or to deliver people. Certainly a massive part of his ministry, but not the prime reason. So he doesn't want people to misunderstand who he is. And that's why I believe he tells the guy not to tell anyone. Tells him instead to go to the priest. I'm sure the priest was overjoyed whenever the leper (laughs) rocked up to the temple, you know, and, and came in. But the reason for that was that the the priest was the one who had the authority to be able to say, yes, you have been healed and you can return to society. The priest had that sort of medical authority uh, that was conferred to him. Uh, Because if the leper had just, you know, showed up and come, you know, appeared at the house where where his his wife and, and children were that he hadn't seen maybe for years and says, you know, honey, I'm home. They would have ran out of the room very, very quickly. He had to go to the priest. He had to have the priest say, you've been healed. And he had to hear the magic words, you can return to community. You can once again be among people. You can return to a place of belonging. You've been ostracized and you've been separated, but Jesus has touched you. And one of the results for every single person, no matter whether they have a physical disease or not, once you've been touched by Jesus One of the Psalms, I can't remember which one, says that he takes, God takes the solitary and he places them in family. And once someone has been touched by Jesus and has become part of the church, the body of Christ, they have come into community and they are no longer on their own. So is Jesus in town, just before we move on to the second little story in this this passage, uh, is Jesus in town? It says there at the, at the start, back in, in, in verse 12, when Jesus was in one of the towns. Now, Jesus could only physically be one place at one time during his, his ministry. And he said in John 14, um, that when the Holy Spirit came, said, greater things, or maybe it was John 12, greater things than these You will do, he said to his followers, you're going to do greater things than me. And I believe what he means by that is when the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us, if we're in town, Jesus is in town, all over the place. Not limited anymore to one physical location somewhere in the Middle East, but all over the earth. As his people populate towns, Jesus is there. And the challenge to to me, to us as a church, Right now, is Jesus in town or has Jesus got real quiet? Has Jesus withdrawn to a safe place? Has Jesus sort of run to the hills because the town is, is not the ideal place to be? Is Jesus in town? And a, and a challenge, something for us together as a church to pray about and think about over these weeks, 
Remind me on Tuesday night that, that this is something that we, we, we should be praying about. How do we make sure that Jesus is in town? I don't think the Holy Spirit is limited in terms of giving us some innovative, creative ideas to make sure Jesus is in, is in town in these days. Yeah? So let's pray about that and let's listen. One of the ways that we want to bring Jesus to town is by getting this unit and, and doing some counseling and bringing Jesus to the town. Yeah? But if we're all just retreating and, and being stuck inside all winter at home, then who's bringing Jesus to town? Think about that. And another thing to think about is the fact that we need to reach out and touch people. Right? That's symbolic right now. Okay. But we, who, who are the unclean in society that society rejects because he did this, she did that, he's that, she's that, and therefore they're pushed to the fringes and they have an idea that they cannot come and touch Jesus. Who are the people that we need to be his, his hands, so to speak, that we reach out and touch them? That little account ends with Jesus withdrawing. Even though the crowds were coming, his priority was to be alone and to be intimate with God. Not to busy himself and burn himself out, but to prioritize that personal intimacy with his Father. So that's the first one. He heals the leper. And then the second story is, a, is again a very familiar one where he heals the, the paralytic. It says in verse 17, One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Luke is setting you up for a showdown. <laughs> the Pharisees are in the room. And it's quite extreme. These guys have traveled from all the surrounding area to check Jesus out. And Jesus, the power of God, is present with him to heal. And there's going to be a showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were really sincere people. Really sincere. They wanted to create the perfect environment for God to act. And they thought that the way to create this perfect environment was to make sure that nobody broke the law. So they took the law of God and they added on loads and loads more laws, regulations, restrictions, all sorts of stuff because they genuinely didn't want anyone to break the law because they genuinely wanted to see God act. But they became completely entrenched in this legalistic way of living. And they forced their traditions and their rules on others. Thinking if they could create that perfect atmosphere, God would move. Confession time, I struggle with perfectionism. I don't know about the rest of you, but it's something that I have to take disciplined action about. For example, yesterday evening, the, Linda and the kids were going to Gosford for an hour or two. And everything in me was saying, there's a chance for a couple of hours, complete quietness, and I can perfect my sermon. I can perfect it. I can polish it, and I can tweak it, and I can do this and do that, and I can check another book, and another book, and another book, and I can perfect it. It is a real problem with me. It is something I have to keep on fighting against. 
So I just said, I'm going to. And I climbed up on one of those random trees and sat on top of it for, for a while, looking silly, and then was spotted by people that I know. Um, Sunday morning, again, the, to, to fight the tendency to stay at home to the last possible second, polishing and perfecting is something that I have to battle against. And I have to take action and just get up and come down here earlier and not come down at the last minute. Because it just raised, I want it perfect. And it is, a, it is a really dangerous mindset to have. Really dangerous. To be continually trying to polish and to not have the attitude of saying, enough, enough. Draw the line, give it a good shot. It's the same with so many things in life. Work hard at things. Do things to excellence. But don't get sucked into this trap of never being able to say, that's enough. The Pharisees were perfectionists. And they're in the room at this scene. They want the perfect environment. But then along comes a messy environment. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Into the the Pharisees' nice little ordered world of perfection comes a complete mess. Literal mess of broken roof tiles and dirt and dust and all sorts, you know, like you know, there would have been wee bugs, I'm sure, in amid in amidst the tiles, and as the tiles are being removed, there's eerie wigs dropping down on people's heads and all sorts of irritation going on. Into the midst of this mess, or in, into the midst of this desire for perfection comes the mess of real life. Our mate is not well, and we're bringing him to you. They weren't looking for perfect conditions, right? They weren't waiting until everything was just right. It's like, Jesus is here. We're a mess, but we're going to get before Jesus. You see, real life is messy. And Jesus isn't afraid of that. You have to understand, you know, from his perspective, as he was in glory with his father before being made flesh, the whole earth probably looked like a bit of a mess. And he waded into it in order to save. And I've thought about these friends this, this last couple of days, these, these guys, I don't know how many there were. I don't think it tells us. Sometimes we assume there's four, one at each corner or lower and the guy down in or whatever. But, but a, a phrase that came to mind was heroic friendship. Do you have any friends who are heroes? Uh, we, go, we go through life with heroes. We go through, uh, my hero is this part when we're kids. My hero is this movie star, sports star, musician, my hero. Do we, do we have friends who are, who are heroes? Because this is heroic friendship. These guys brought their friend to Jesus. Let's, let's maybe loosely have that in our minds and our hearts as a definition of Christian friendship. I'm your friend if I bring you to Jesus. And I wonder, did this guy go willingly uh, you know, it's that frustration sometimes with the scriptures where you'd love just sometimes a wee bit more, a wee bit more detail, a wee bit more background. Did he go willingly? 
Or was he saying to them, listen guys, please, no, don't make a scene, don't make a fuss, just, just let me be, leave me on my mat begging by the side of the road, don't, I don't want to go, I, I don't want to bother him, I don't want everybody looking at me. Uh, was he dragged along? Um, was, he, was he protesting the whole time? Have you ever brought someone to Jesus who didn't really want to go? Have you ever been in a state in, in life and in your own journey where you didn't really feel like going to Jesus? Faith that was not arising within you. You didn't feel particularly hopeful. But you've got a few heroes around you who basically said, we're taking you whether you want to or not. And by taking you doesn't mean we're taking you to a meeting or we're taking you to, to an event. We're going to be around you. And being around you, we're going to bring you to Jesus. Because right now your faith might be weak. Right, right now you're not even able to walk, but we're going to bring you to him anyway. That's heroic friendship. That's proper mates, that there. Like, proper mates. And sometimes you need the faith of others. We, we read about how, how Jesus saw their faith. Is that all of them, including the man? Or is it the friends, apart from the man who was on the mat, but Jesus saw their faith. And I think, I think as, as heroic friends, we need to sometimes be patient with people. You don't want to go to a guy lying on the mat, paralytic, and say to him, would you just get up? Like, would you stop wallowing in your, in your inability to walk and just get up and get on with it? Sometimes we can be so harsh with people. We can be so impatient with them. These guys were reasonable with their friend and they came to him and said, listen, we see the state you're in. We're going to carry you. We're going to carry you. That's the sort of friend I want to be. Yeah? It's the sort of friends I want around me. I don't really care what football team they support or what music they're into or what food they like or even what age they are. I want people around me who when I'm flat on the mat not to the mat, and when I'm flat on the mat and I can't walk and my faith is weak and I've been knocked down, I want people who will gather around and say, we're going to bring you to Jesus. And when I say, oh, do you know what? I'm tired and I'm, I just want to be on this. No, no, no. We're going to bring you to Jesus. We're going to make a cup of coffee and we're going to bring you to Jesus. This is heroic friendship. We will carry you. We will bring you. And yeah, Every time, every time we're together, that should be happening. Every time we're together. Not just Sunday morning, but any time we're together. There should be that aspect of we're bringing each other. We're bringing each other to Jesus. And something that I might lean into a little bit next week that I've just been, I've been thinking about was some of the early friendships in Paul's life. Ananias and Barnabas. The key people who met with him. And helped him to get established. And thinking about how are we going to how are we going to progress through the next few months when you're not allowed to go to each other's house. But you are allowed to come here. <laughs> and you know where the keys are. And if you have a Bible and you pray and you're socially distant and clean and all of that, and you're not coughing, and your aim is to encourage one another, you're being church and you can do it just fine. Make use of the place. We're all paying the rent. Right? It'd, be, it'd be an awful shame if the lights only went on on Sunday morning for an hour or two. I was saying earlier, I'd love to be driving past here. Every evening in the week, I'd love to drive past and just say, oh, the lights are on. I wonder who's in there. Somebody's in there bringing their friend to Jesus. Yeah? 
Make use of the place. Don't flout it. Don't be sneaking in, getting a takeaway and putting the, putting the pool table up and, and having the bant like. But come in with your Bible and with prayer and encourage one another. Use the place while we can. Jesus sees their faith. Faith is active. I love the fact that, don't misunderstand me, but in a way you can sort of, it's not about impressing Jesus. It's not the right word. I can't find a, what, I, what I want at the minute. But that sense of Jesus sees it. Whenever you're determined, you know, a, de- a good definition of friendship is, is I will bring you to Jesus. A good definition of faith is I'm going to get to Jesus. Right? I'm going to get to Jesus. Whatever, whatever it takes, I will get to where he is. If that means taking the tiles off the roof. Whatever it takes, I will push through to get to Jesus. That's faith, that determination. And Jesus sees it and he honors it. And I believe he honors the time that we spend with him each day. I believe he honors the times when we say we're so busy or we're so tired, but still we're going to sit in the chair and just still ourselves and be determined to actually reach him. He sees their faith. And then there's another shock. What shocks have we had so far? We had the the shock of him touching the guy. We had the shock of him telling the guy not to tell anybody. And now he says to this fella, your sins are forgiven. I can imagine the, the disappointment in the room, almost, you know. You know that moment in Shrek where everything goes quiet and the dove flies into the wall and just drops dead on the ground? That's what, some of you are laughing. That's one of these moments where there's just like this sudden, the music dies out and it's like, what? Really? We've brought him here. We've removed the part of the roof. We've lowered him down. And that's it? (laughs) Imagine the guy saying, that's not why I came. I came because I can't walk or I was brought here because I can't walk. Just like Jesus said to the, in my imagination, would have said to the leper earlier, that's not why I came. Don't go out and spread the wrong word about me. That's not why I, I can imagine this guy now saying to Jesus, that's not why I came. <laughs> just that moment of, of like, seriously, after all of this, right guys, you know, just <laughs> pull me up, I'm going home. That's not my problem. Can imagine him saying to Jesus, that's not, can, you, can you not see what my problems are, Jesus? Is it not clear enough? We're great sometimes at diagnosing our problems. I don't know about you, but I could, I could probably go to Jesus quite easily with half a dozen things and say, fix that, 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 that you know, and everything will be fine. And I imagine Jesus would just say, okay, those things are important, but that's not your problem. That's not your problem. You see, the problem is sin. My problem, your problem, humanity's problem, the problem is sin. And this guy comes to Jesus, and this is an object lesson. Whatever you think is the biggest problem in your life, it's not. (laughs) The problem is sin. That's what Jesus is telling humanity. The problem is sin. Sin brings death. Like leprosy brings death, sin brings death. Like leprosy for the previous guy separates you from community and society, sin eventually wrecks your relationships, isolates you, and also puts a wedge between you and God. And Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the people that even though this man would say, that's not why I came, Jesus, I believe, would say, but that is why I came. (laughs) That is why I came. 
There's a sin problem in the human race. And it doesn't matter if every one of you gets healed. It doesn't matter if every one of you is is restored from leprosy. It doesn't matter if every single human being on earth is delivered from demonic oppression or whatever. If that's all that happens and sin is not dealt with, what good is it? You can be healed and still be lost. You can be delivered and still be lost. Jesus came to deal with sin. It says later in Luke, in the, in the account of, of Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And whenever Jesus heals people, he doesn't draw attention to himself. Quite the opposite. He says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. You read in Mark's gospel where he meet blind guys and, and mute guys on the road and just, just a wee sort of sideline point that Mark makes. And he says, Jesus took them to one side. Can I just imagine, you know, Jesus walking through the town, big crowd of people around him, some guy on the side of the road shouting and yelling. And Jesus goes and says, come here. And goes in behind a wall somewhere and heals him. Quietly. And then back out and away he goes again. Because he, he, he doesn't draw attention to himself. But I believe the moment, the moment that Jesus does draw attention to himself, the moment that the gospel writers draw attention to as the greatest moment of glory, the moment when he is elevated. If you want people to see something, you put it up. Right? You, you, you raise it so that, they can, so that they can see it above everything else. The moment that Jesus is elevated, lifted up, is on the cross to deal with sin <laughs> so that people can be forgiven as well as healed, as well as delivered, as well as restored, that they can be forgiven because our greatest problem is sin. And again, I'm putting words in where I'm maybe, hopefully I'm not stretching it, but I can imagine Jesus on the cross saying, look at me now, okay? Now look at me. Don't don't focus too much on the healings. Don't, Don't focus. But now you can take a long, hard look. This is why I came. This is why I came. He is revealed and he reveals God as he's glorified. And notice the name that is used. Because this is the last shock in this morning's passage. In, in, In Luke 19, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And in John 3, Jesus talks about the Son of Man being lifted up like that snake in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Come and look at it. Look at it. And you will be delivered from the poison that's in you. The Son of Man, in, in whenever the, a dispute arises with the Pharisees in this passage, after he said to this guy, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees say, hang on, wait a minute, you can't do that. He then, he then says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, but that you may know, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And the ripple that would have gone through the room when he said, Son of Man. That's the fourth shock in the shock and awe blast in this passage. There would have just been a hope. What did he just say? Did Did he really just call himself the Son of Man? And this is... This is from Daniel 7, and and I'm about to close. But this is one of the high points of your Old Testament. I I think in in the heavenlies, I almost, I, I feel this is the scene as Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross. It's almost, I believe, in my mind, this was happening at the same time. 
Daniel sees this vision and he says, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. And that became a key phrase in the mindset of of the Jews. A key phrase, this figure, the son of man. I saw one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the son of man. That for me, the moment Jesus gives up his spirit, I don't know whether this is theologically correct, but that when I read about him giving up his spirit on the cross and dying, I think, bang, in heaven, straight away, that's what happened. Victor, conqueror, king, kingdom established, seated at the right hand of of God. And when he then uses that phrase in Luke, in our passage, and tells them that I'm the son of man and I have authority to forgive sins, that is an absolute shock through that room. And we finish off by reading that they were filled with awe at what he had done. Filled with awe. So, you may be impacted by various different parts of that. You may go home right now and say, well, how how can we bring Jesus to town? You may go home and you may think, well, who can I touch? Who can I touch and infect them with life and let the river meet the sea? You may go home and think about friendship, heroic friendship. Who, who can I bring to Jesus? Who brings me to Jesus? I, I want, I would love around about February or March next year to reflect on the previous six months and say, church, we did some heroic friendship. We got together and we brought each other to Jesus in little small gatherings when we couldn't do it in our houses. Yeah? And it could be the realization that your problem, my problem, although we self-diagnose lots of things, the problem is sin. And one of the things that I have, and I'm going to stop talking, but one of the things that I have sort of disciplined myself to do, and I have these little, just these little disciplines, these little sort of resolutions almost that I make from time to time, is that I try when we're singing and when we're singing about forgiveness, I try at that point. Now, there's lots of points when we're singing that I would raise my hands and do all sorts of things, and which I'm reminded of frequently, but there, there are, I try as a discipline when a line in the song is about being forgiven that my spirit tells my hands, up you go, so my hands can tell the rest of me, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. Not having a good day at work tomorrow, not having financial issues sorted out, not having health, this is the most important thing. So when we're singing something like... Um, and no longer slaves. And there's that wee line, I've been born again into your family. Up go the hands, because that's awesome. Yeah? It's just a simple gesture to get myself completely into the, into the mindset that agrees with Jesus' mindset that the most important thing is being forgiven. All right? Let's, let's worship. Let's have our masks on and behave ourselves. But let's make sure that in our hearts we are bowed before him.